You may not be wondering this, but I'll, I'll ask you to wonder about it for a moment with me. We've been working our way through the whole Bible, right, doing a series called Learning to Love God's Word. It's we're over the past three years or so, and we're getting close to the end. Um, we're working through the end of the New Testament. Last week, we uh, talked about Second Peter, and today we'll talk about the book of Jude. And if you're familiar with the way the end of the New Testament unfolds, you're going, what happened to the three books that come between Second Peter and Jude? There are three little short letters called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Where are they? Why are we, you know, it's kind of like we're taking a road trip and we're going miles out of our way to see the most neglected book in the New Testament. It's what the book of Jude has been called. Why are we doing that? Well, one of the reasons that the book of Jude gets overlooked a lot is, well, it's maybe an exaggeration to call it a book. It doesn't even have multiple chapters. It's 25 verses long. You can print it on one page, um, maybe one and a half in some Bibles. And one of the reasons it's neglected because a lot of the contents of this book overlap with the book of Second Peter. So that's why we're taking it out of sequence today. There's a lot of thematic continuity between Second Peter and the book of Jude. And so some people go, why, why read Jude when you can get the longer version from the great apostle Peter himself? And Jude, he only says he's the brother of James, happens also to be a half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't mention that, but that, that's who's writing this book. The reason that we want to read this short book is because Jude is a faithful pastor. He sees in the churches that he serves, or maybe just one church, we don't really know, but he sees the same problem that Peter recognized in the book of 2 Peter. There are leaders coming into the church who claim to be Christians, but they're actually denying who Christ is and what Christ taught. As Jude will say in verse 18, these are leaders who twist God's grace in order to indulge what Jude calls their ungodly passions. And uh, for whatever reason, sometimes churches listen more to their pastors than to the famous faraway preacher. So Jude knows as a faithful pastor that his people will listen to what he has to say, even if Peter said similar things with more detail. And so he writes them a, a pastoral letter and says, don't leave the love that keeps you safe. Other people are going to be tempted to leave that love, and to them you need to show mercy, the same kind of mercy that Jesus has shown to you. We'll get to hear those themes as Sam reads for us. The scripture reading this morning is from Jude, verses 1 through 4 and 20 through 25. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his, of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a minute and pray. Holy Spirit, we don't pretend to have enough wisdom to understand who God is or what life in Him ought to look like. And so we need you to speak to us. And we thank you that through the Scriptures you are present with us and you are speaking to us. Would you help us to see Christ more clearly today than we ever have before and to find more joy and comfort in Him. And uh, we pray for those, Jude says, who are doubting, uh, who are being misled by, by false leaders. We ask that you would draw them back to yourself. Amen. We lived in a section of Scotland for a couple of years that um, didn't didn't attract a whole lot of attention throughout the centuries. And so uh, it was kind of too far out of the way to be politically significant. So when wars got fought, the castles didn't get torn down. So today you can tour all these incredible old castles in the northeastern section of Scotland. And a lot of them have what's called a keep. The big strong tower that was the safest place to be when the battle was raging. And usually the keep looks not very attractive. So if you're looking for a fairy tale princess kind of castle, you're not going to be looking at the keep. Because the keep is usually a squatty square building, no windows, because you don't want danger to have a way to get in. And walls usually six, eight, ten. 15 feet thick. The keep is the safest place to be when the battle is raging. And while the battle's raging, it's easy to post guards outside the entrance to make sure that the people inside stay safely inside and that the danger doesn't come in. That's the kind of image that lies behind this short little book that we call the letter of Jude. There's an intense battle going on. Jude is aware as people are coming into the church and introducing false teaching. And so Jude calls believers in Jesus to contend for the faith. Um, Verse 3, you know, I wanted to write you a letter about the salvation that we share together because of Jesus But instead, I realize there's this battle raging, and I've got to call you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The word contend uh, in in English 
right, means fight, argue, you know, kind of go on the defensive, adopt this kind of aggressive posture. Well, the, the Greek word means kind of the same thing. So it's, a, it's a word for wrestling. It's a word for struggling or, or hand-to-hand combat, right? There's, there's a fight going on, and, and, and I need you to enter into it. But the assumption behind it all is that God's people are being kept. God has a keep, a safe place for us. We're being kept in love and guarded by mercy. So that's where we're start today. I want us to get a brief overview of the main themes of the book of Jude and then, and then talk about some specific ways that that applies to us here and now today. So, first major theme is this, God the Father and God the Son keep us in love and mercy. That's how Jude starts and that's how he ends, right? Listen to verse 1 again, Jude, servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, or maybe kept by Jesus Christ. You might see that footnote. Either way, there's a keeping going on because of the love of God. We are loved by God and therefore guarded and kept because of Jesus. Look at the way the book ends, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, he is able to present you blameless before his own presence with great joy. When will that happen? the day that Jesus returns. But between now and then, He is able to keep us. Why? Because God is our Savior through Jesus Christ. So there's keeping, there's guarding going on. And then verse 21 talks about our role and responsibility as a result. Because God keeps us, it's our duty to keep ourselves in the love of God. Verse 21. Kind of God built this massive keep in the castle where you could stay safe. Your job is to stay in there. Stay inside his love. Don't go outside the safe place that he has built to guard you and preserve you and keep you. What are we waiting for inside that keep? Verse 21 says, we're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So between now and the return of Jesus... If he comes to us or if we go to him first in death, God is able to keep us. He is guarding us through the mercy of Christ. Second major theme of this little letter is there are false teachers who distort God's grace. Now, every human heart has the capacity to distort what is true about God. This is not a unique thing that describes only a certain set of people. But the particular problem going on when Jude wrote this letter was being encountered in a most intense way through false teachers. Listen again to verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. They were long ago designated for this condemnation. Which condemnation? Well, the one he's about to describe in verses 5 through 18. What kind of people are these? Ungodly people, Jude says, who pervert or twist or distort the grace of our God into sensuality. And and when they do that, Jude says, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 18 to say, "Don't, don't be too surprised by this. 
right? The apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, mentioned in verse 17, said to you, verse 18 says, in the last time there will be scoffers, remember that word from 2 Peter, following their own ungodly passions. So there are false teachers, false teachers. When I say teacher here, I don't mean the English understanding of that word, someone who conveys information and gets paid to do it, right? But teacher in the, in the sense that it's used in the New Testament is someone who disciples you, someone who shapes your heart, mind, and life, right? And uh, so a false teacher would be someone in this context who claims to be a mature Christian. But the more you listen to them and the more you live like them, the further you get from Jesus. The kinds of leaders that, that Jude is talking about are, are that kind of leader. Someone who has come in, right, verse 4, certain people have crept in. These are people who have come inside the church. They, they would claim to be Christians, and they would claim to be mature enough to lead and to teach. So, someone who claims to be a mature Christian, but the more you listen to them and the more you live like them, the further you are getting away from Jesus and you're in danger of going outside that safe place of God's love the more you listen to this kind of false teacher. Now, caveat, a false teacher is not just somebody who says or does something we disagree with, right? A good discipler will challenge you and stretch you and make you think about things that you might not be comfortable with. They will challenge you to do things that you may not be comfortable with, right? You can remember the Apostle Paul would show up with Gentiles eating pork all day long, and Jewish Christians were like, <laughs> scandalized by this. He was a good teacher. He was a good discipler. So a false teacher is not just somebody who says or does something that we might disagree with or find unpleasant. And a false teacher is not just somebody who makes a mistake. No discipler is perfect, right? Every Christian leader will say things that are inaccurate, maybe not as loving as they should be from time to time. Every Christian leader, teacher, discipler, will lead you astray by their own conduct sometimes, right? They will, they will practice things that are not loving toward you or toward others or toward God. It's called sin. But a faithful Christian leader, knowing they're not perfect, is going to frequently confess their sin, frequently repent, frequently say to you, I blew it. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. We're talking here about a different kind of leader or teacher, somebody who claims to be mature as a disciple of Jesus, but is actually leading you away from the truth of who Jesus is and the truth that Jesus has given us in the Scriptures. Jude warns us not to follow disciplers who are like that. He says in verse 13, these people are wild waves of the sea. They're casting up the foam of their own shame. They are wandering stars the sea imagery, right? Think of trying to navigate by following a star, and the star keeps moving, so you're aimless. You can't find the direction you want to be on. They're wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Judas saying, there are false teachers in the church who distort God's grace. 
Don't follow them. Glad nobody got up and left. Yeah, can we, is it okay to laugh about that? Thanks. We'll take that as a vote of some confidence. Um, And so our role, Jude says, is to contend for the faith. Right back in verse 3. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith. Okay, now some of us like to fight. Some of us are by nature and personality kind of argumentative. You know, if somebody says something wrong, we want to say, eh, right now, right here, we got to correct that. Some of us are a little more laid back, easygoing. We're like, eh, we'll let it slide for now. So we're Presbyterians. In town is a member of the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. This is a caricature, but caricatures usually reflect something of the church, of the truth. We are a denomination that kind of likes to fight. Um, Presbyterians historically have been willing and ready to get a little uppity uh, when they think somebody's saying or doing something false. And uh, so to say to somebody who by personality or by heritage or tradition might be prone to argue and fight, you need to go contend. It might sound like, oh, I have been given the green light by the Word of God to go fight people and argue with people and attack people and to beat up Christians who listen to false stuff. I can't wait. Oh, yep, don't clap. That shoulder is still a little sore. (laughs) Um, Judah is a faithful pastor. He has not given us the green light. To attack people. Notice how he teaches us to contend for the faith. Verse 20, first of all, by praying for the power of the Holy Spirit. You, beloved, verse 20 says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. How? By praying in the Holy Spirit. In, in Greek, the relationship between building ourselves up and praying is much more clear. The building ourselves up is done by praying in the Holy Spirit, right? Pray for the Holy Spirit to strengthen your faith. If you got a word to say about a false teacher, first say a thousand words to God in prayer. If you got a word to say to somebody who's drifting because they're listening to a false discipler, first pray for them. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. So whatever contending for the faith looks like, it's got to be shaped by the power of the Spirit, not by human anger and not by human agendas. Jude does say contend for the faith, but he says do it in this way because he's a wise and faithful pastor. Next, we contend for the faith by trusting in the love of God. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Surely the love of God would shape how we go about contending. If people can't sense something of the love of God as we contend for the faith and truth about Jesus and truth about the Scriptures, if love isn't pouring out in that process, we're getting it wrong. I'm not saying that because I'm kind of a, you know, purple wearing bow tie sort of guy 
who's by personality, conflict averse. I'm saying it because the scriptures say it. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Contending for the faith has to involve the Spirit's power, not human anger or agendas, and it has to involve trusting in the love of God. And finally, it involves extending Christ's mercy to other people. Notice that Jude describes three ways that we should show mercy to other people. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Another way to translate, translate that word doubt could be those who dispute. So here he's talking about people who have been, they've been listening to the false teaching. They've been following the false teachers enough that, that they're starting to argue, but maybe they're right. And, and maybe Jude, the stuff you've been telling us and the other apostles, maybe the stuff you've been telling us is wrong. And Jude says, hammer that guy, drive him like a nail all the way down. No, he doesn't say that. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. So if you know someone who is drifting from truth about Jesus and truth about Scripture, your first response isn't to attack. Your first response is to show mercy. One form of that mercy is to tell somebody you're worried about them. One form of that mercy is to enter into that discussion, that argument. One form of that mercy is to say, what is it that make, that's making you doubt? I want to help you. And then Jude mentions another group of people. Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Okay, there are some who are drifting and there are some who have already left. They've already left the truth about Jesus. They've, they've, they've left the desire to listen to faithful, orthodox teaching from Scripture. And Jude says, save them. Show mercy by snatching them out of the fire. They've left, but maybe they'll still listen. So this first group, ready to argue, ready to, ready to have a discussion. This next group, not arguing anymore, not interested in the discussion. Well, go after them. Snatch them out of the fire. And then there's a third category. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There are some who are drifting. Show them mercy. There are some who have left, but they'll still listen. Snatch them out of the fire. And there are some who have said they're not coming back. And to them, show mercy with fear. Be careful, just as you would be careful around someone who has leprosy, the garment stained by the flesh, drawing on that kind of Old Testament imagery. You hang around somebody who's, who's bought into falsehoods about Christ and Scripture, about reality, and, and, and you could be contaminated. So be careful, but show mercy. Show mercy. Show mercy with fear. We're drawing here on verse 5 of Jude. I want to remind you, he says in verse 5, although you once fully knew it, I kind of want to remind you again, that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt, and afterward he destroyed those who did not believe. 
Now here we're, we're drawing back to the, the Old Testament, the books of Exodus and Numbers, where after God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, there were some who said, we'd be better off back in Egypt. There were some who said, I don't think God's going to take care of us. So when I have an opportunity to um, hide some treasures under my tent, even though God said to destroy them, I'm going to do it. And you read the Old Testament, and it says, in order to protect the rest of the people of Israel from, from the contagion of unbelief, these who were leading others astray were destroyed. And if you think to yourself, mm, nah, the Jesus I know would only save people, he wouldn't destroy people, I got a quick argument for you. It's called cross and resurrection. Jesus underwent destruction on the cross, and then he underwent salvation through the resurrection. The, the great day of resurrection glory and joy that is coming has already been started through the resurrection of Christ. And the great day of destruction that's coming for anybody who says, God, I appreciate your advice, but I think I can do better for myself. Jesus has already experienced that. So that if you put your trust in him now, you won't ever have to experience that. So this pattern of destruction and salvation is woven into the very heart of everything that Jesus ever did or said, all that he is. And that's why, you know, Jude can say, hey, I know my Old Testament. It says God redeemed people out of Egypt. Yeah, it was Jesus who did that because the whole Bible is meant to point me to Jesus. Are we supposed to struggle and contend and, and wrestle and fight and grapple against falsehood about Scripture and Jesus? Yes. Are we supposed to struggle and grapple and contend against those who would mislead our brothers and sisters in Jesus by claiming to be mature followers of Jesus but actually leading people away from him? Yes, but we're supposed to do that with the same love and mercy that keep us safe. Have mercy on those who doubt, Jude says. Save others, Jude says. To others, show mercy with fear. There's mercy throughout all of it. It's easy to forget that. Well, let's talk for a moment about what that looks like in our own day. Jude was a faithful pastor. And so he very clearly warned the church or churches in which he was a leader about the issue that was facing them. And um, he hints at it in uh, verse 4. When he talks about ungodly people who, who twist the grace of God into sensuality. Another way to translate that would be just kind of unrestrained immorality. And it's a word that in the New Testament 
is, is a pretty broad umbrella, but it very much suggests sexual immorality. Uh, so here's Jude saying lots of issues going on, lots of issues at stake, big broad umbrella, this unrestrained immorality, but under that umbrella are issues regarding sexual practice. So I'm going to be a faithful pastor, and I want to talk about what I think are probably the most common forms of this kind of false teaching or false discipling that you're most likely to encounter here now. Like living when we do and where we do, what are you most likely to hear? Okay, we don't live in the first century, so we're not going to hear a first century uh, take on, on how to lead somebody astray from Jesus and twist God's grace into a license for living as we please. We're going to hear the, the, the 21st century version. Well, what is that? Here's one. Beware disciplers who would cause you or anybody else to trust the Scriptures less. Beware a discipler who causes you to trust human wisdom as much as you trust Scripture or to trust human wisdom more than you trust Scripture. I realize that in some circles that might make me sound you know, kind of old-fashioned or, or out of touch intellectually. I get it. But I don't think there's an honest way to follow Jesus, the Jesus who actually lived and died and rose again, and neglect the Scriptures. There's not an honest way to follow Jesus and trust Scripture less than he did. What does that sound like in our day? You know, there, there are plenty of Christian leaders who would say Scripture is um, full, of, full of errors or it's outdated. It's kind of irrelevant to some of our needs. It is just human tradition. So if we can come up with a, a, a better wisdom on some topics, then, then we'll, it's okay to supplement that tradition with our own. Um, but I see this form happening more and more. It's people who would say, oh, I totally get the, 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 the relevance of Scripture, but the meaning of Scripture is determined by my experience. Beware a discipler who takes you in that direction. The meaning of Scripture is determined by the intention of the God who gave it. And sometimes figuring that intention out takes hard work. But the meaning of Scripture is not determined by your experience or mine. Our experience might give us more insight into some aspects of Scripture. Right? So if, if Proverbs says, you know, it really hurts when somebody speaks a painful word. Well, if you've, if you've experienced that, you understand that proverb more and better. But, but your experience didn't determine the meaning of the text. Your experience confirmed the meaning that God intended. Now, some people would say, and, and here's where, if, if anybody's taken a hermeneutics class or, or, or been in a philosophy class, you know, it's really common to say there's no such thing as a meaning in a text, that a text can bear as many meanings as there are readers in the world. You don't live that way. That's not the way the world works, okay? Every act of communication in, is embedded in a web of context. And, and when the communicator 
takes that communication act and embeds it in that specific context, they anchor its meaning. So, for example, if I walk into a room and I say, fire, you don't know what I mean until you know more about the web, the context. If I walk in panicking, looking around and running toward a fire extinguisher and I say, fire, that act of communication embedded in, in that context means, okay, that word means something's burning, there's an emergency, we should evacuate. But if I speak that same word in a different web of context, I'm determining its meaning in another way. Right? If, if we're at a funeral of military honors and I'm in uniform and I'm standing next to a group of soldiers holding rifles and I say, ready, aim, fire, I mean, pull the trigger as an expression of honor for this person who just died. And, and you can't take my word, my, my act of communication, out of one web and context and plant it down in another. You can't say, oh, well, that guy in military uniform, you know, he could have meant anything by saying fire. No, he couldn't. He didn't. Right? And if I walk into the ski lodge shivering, going, F -f 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 fire, while I'm walking toward the fireplace... You know what I mean is, I'm really cold, and man, nothing ever looked as good as that roaring fire right now. That's the way communication works. Those who initiate acts of communication intend something, and we can, we can know what they intend. We have to know context. If all you give me is the one word fire with an exclamation point after it, I could come up with a whole lot of scenarios. You want me to keep going? No, you don't. Um, right? But all, that doesn't mean we can make the text mean whatever we want by our experience. What it means is sometimes when we don't know enough context, we've got to find more threads in the web and learn more. And the intention of the one who gave the word will become more clear to us. Beware of disciples who say, I'm mature in Jesus, I want you to become more, more mature in Jesus, and the way I will get you there is to cause you to trust Scripture less than you trust your own experience. Stay safe. Let's talk about sexuality, but let's get there by talking first about the goodness of creation. Some of the earliest Christian heresies were when people who claimed to be Christians, trying, trying to make other Christians more enlightened, said, the world God made is not good. Gnosticism was an early movement where people said, Jesus came to redeem us from the God of the Old Testament. And the God of the Old Testament was evil. How do we know that God was evil? Because he made a physical world. And being physical is evil. And Jesus came to make us spiritual, not physical. So Jesus didn't really have a body. He only seemed to have a human body. Well, the early church recognized that that's totally, fundamentally out of line with anything ever Jesus ever said or did with what he revealed to us through his apostles, with, with the understanding of the Old Testament itself, 
those people are telling you they're giving you a, a higher version of Christianity, but they're leading you further away from Jesus and toward danger. There is no God who came to rescue us from the God of the Old Testament. There is the Son of God who came to complete the purposes of the God of the Old Testament. So the, the church has always acknowledged for centuries that if you start to tweak with this question of whether creation is good, you are disturbing the very foundations of all that we know and believe. Ultimately, it's going to distort what you know about Christ. So beware disciples who deny the goodness of the created world. Beware Christian leaders who say, I can make you more mature as a Christian by convincing you that the world comes from random chance, time plus matter plus luck. Anything that looks good about the world was imposed by our cultural assumptions. There is no goodness woven into the world itself. That's not a Christian understanding of the goodness of the world that God has made. And you're sitting there going, I think you were talking about evolution. And I think you just told me I can't, if I'm a Christian, I have to reject science. I didn't say that. Science is actually based on the goodness of the created world, right? Science presupposes their stability and order and not randomness and chaos around every corner. Science presupposes there's something here worth understanding, worth exploring, worth getting excited about, enough that we'd spend a lot of time studying it and spend money on it. No, there's, there's a place in faithful Christianity for developing the skills that we call scientific. But I think it's a danger if someone's discipling you in a direction that the more you learn as a Christian, the less you see the world as a good place created by God. So be careful. Okay, we're getting closer to sex now. Beware disciples who say that sex is only a physical appetite. If anybody says you can be a more whole Christian uh, by uh, sort of dissociating the physical activity of sexuality from the personal connection and commitment that ought to happen in a marriage relationship. Watch out for that. God created a world in which the physical and the spiritual are mysteriously intertwined so that I cannot punch you in the face without damaging your heart and damaging our relationship. And in the same way, I can't engage in, in physical intimacy with someone without holding their heart and either strengthening it or harming it. Those two things are closely related. I know we live in a world that says they aren't. And it's going to become more and more tempting for Christian teachers to say, you know, so that we don't seem totally out of step with the world we live in, let's just kind of disconnect spirituality and relationships from the physical side of sexuality. 
That's a denial of the goodness of the way God made the world where those two can't be separated. It's why Jesus had to come in real flesh. He couldn't come just as a spirit to redeem just spiritual stuff or just spiritual people. We are whole people. He came as a whole redeemer to redeem the whole us. And maybe you're fearing that I'm going to say this. I think I need to say it. We've got to be really careful of letting ourselves be discipled by Christian leaders or teachers who would say to us that we should embrace a view of gender that is divorced from the body. I know that's a very complicated topic, and I know for some of you, even the fact that I said that sentence stirs up some pain or anxiety. I wish I had about five weeks to talk about it. I get about five minutes. Can you be patient with me? It's hard for me to escape that some of the conversations happening about gender in our society right now, they seem to imply that the body is irrelevant or that the body is bad. That, that there's a sense of personhood you can have that's distinct from your body. I think if we carry that too far, we are going to deny that the body God has created is good. And this is why the book of Jude is so important. And do you see it? Do you feel it? I, I know it's like this backwater that nobody ever reads, and I know it's like, you know, most neglected book of the whole New Testament. But what does Jude say? If you know someone who is being impacted by one of these kinds of teaching, by a Christian leader who's saying, trust Scripture less, or, or who's saying, you know what, the creation is not good, it's just randomness. Or, you know what, have all the sex you want, don't worry about relational commitment because the two are kind of dis disconnected from each other. Or a view of gender that, that makes this really radical disconnect between who we are and, and our body. Our first response is, what does Jews say? Have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. Contend for the faith, but do it by praying to the Holy Spirit. Do it by keeping yourself in the love of God and letting that shape the way you interact with other people. Do it by waiting for the mercy that comes from Jesus and then take that same mercy and show it to other people who may be doubting, we're confused by a false discipler. Our first response isn't attack. We listen to the word that Jesus has given us, and it says, have mercy, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear. Have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. We don't deny the pain of people who feel a tension between their gender and their body. We have mercy. If a leader or teacher is reinforcing an unhealthy view on, on that kind of topic, then we have mercy with fear, Jude says. 
We have to be more careful with that teacher because they're a greater danger. We show mercy. We don't mock or mistreat people who are longing for physical intimacy, but who have not been taught to pursue that in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. We have mercy. We have mercy. We have mercy. I, I, would, I would be a person who seeks sexual fulfillment outside of marriage if not for God's grace and mercy. Rescuing me, snatching me out of the fire. I, I need to be rescued more than anybody else on this whole planet. Look, I know you're not perfect. I know there are flaws about you. I see them from the outside and very infrequently. I live with my own sin every day, and I see it from the inside. So I ought to know I need rescuing more than anybody else. That's the way you contend for the faith. Not through a posture of superiority and condemnation and, and demeaning and belittling other people. Listen to the text. It says, first, pray to the Spirit. Second, keep yourself in the love of God. Third, wait for the mercy of Christ. And then have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. That's how we contend for the faith. My Ph.D. supervisor was a man named Howard Marshall. He was a pretty famous guy, so everybody just called him The Howard. As in, I just met The Howard? The Howard Marshall? Yeah, that was him. I would have never known. He was so friendly and helpful. <laughs> yeah, internationally renowned scholars don't normally um, come in a package of scholar, pastor, servant, humble. But Howard did. I want to tell you a little bit about him. Um, one of my favorite memories of Howard was seeing him meet a young man who had come from Hong Kong to study uh, for a Ph.D. in New Testament studies under Howard's leadership. And that young man couldn't wait to say, my dad studied under you, and I was in your five-year-old Sunday school class. Here's an internationally renowned scholar, right, <laughs> teaching the five-year-old Sunday school class at his church. Howard was a scholar and a pastor. And he understood that the, the climate right now in, in the world of New Testament studies is uh, biased against the reliability of Scripture. And so the world of New Testament studies tends to be popula populated by a lot of people who would claim to be Christians, but who are finding more and more ways to say we can't trust the Bible. And Howard's response was to say, I want students to come study here who, who aren't like that. I, I, want, I want students to come here who, who take their Christian faith seriously. But because we take our faith seriously, we're going to do more intellectually rigorous work than anybody else. We're going to have to work harder. And because of our Christian faith, we're going to have to be more gracious to those who take positions that we disagree with. And so in the scholarly world, it's not uncommon to, to kind of 
publish articles that are in attack mode. So-and-so say this, can you believe it? You know, it's blah, 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 blah. And Howard modeled and he taught. That's not how it is with us. We know Jesus. So we're going to work hard to discover why trusting Jesus is a reasonable thing for people to do. And we're not going to say that because we trust Jesus, we're afraid to use our brains. We're going to think harder than anybody else. Work harder. And he made you, I mean, it's so frustrating. Page one of your dissertation, you want to say, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. He was like, write me a footnote and prove it. But Howard, we believe that. We've always, our people have always believed that. I don't care. You need to know why you believe it. And you need to be able to convince somebody who doubts it. That is true. Oh, man, this is going to be hard work, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and especially we have to be more gracious than anyone else toward those who have been impacted by false teachers. Howard didn't use this phrase, but he was saying through his actions, through his attitudes, have mercy. Wait for the mercy that comes from Jesus and leads to eternal life. And in the meantime, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the mercy that you have purchased for us. It came at a great cost. Um, the scriptures say, you tell us through your own parables that we were running away from you. And so it cost you something to run after us and to find us and to find us here. And the price you paid was your very life undergoing judgment, condemnation in our place. Thank you for that mercy. Would you help us to show mercy to others who are struggling? to fellow disciples in Jesus who maybe are being led astray. Help us to have mercy to those who doubt. Help us to snatch from the fire those who have wandered but are still willing to listen. And for others, help us learn what it is to have mercy with fear all because you have shown your great mercy to us, we pray in your name. Amen.